Once upon a time, there was a gas grill that my wife wanted me to buy. I bought the gas grill and I decided to put it together. I'm the picture guy. I like to look at the picture on the front of the box and think that I'm smart enough to figure out how to put all the pieces together. Well, as I attempted that, I soon discovered that the engineer who both designed the grill and also wrote the instructions to put the grill together had different thoughts than I did about where certain pieces go. So by the time I got to the end, I had a whole box of spare pieces and a grill that looked deformed. And I didn't realize that I actually had to go back and put in part 59A before you put in 589. I'm being a little facetious, but it all lined up. And after you got all the pieces the way the instructions said, you ended up with a perfectly assembled gas grill. Now, a lesson to be learned here is never buy a gas grill that's not put together already. <laughs> buy the one that's on display, you know, pay them extra if you need to, it's worth every penny. But this all has relevance here because we're in a section on the book of Romans in chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now, hear me carefully. The designer and the planner from all eternity knows exactly what the structure is to look like. He also has some details of what this plan is to be, and he shares those with us. If you only see page one or you only look at one angle of a picture, you're not going to get the entire focus. So this morning, I'm going to do the unthinkable, the unreasonable, and the unbelievable and teach you three chapters in the book of Romans in less than 35 minutes, okay? So I have quite a challenge, but I think I can do that. Now, as we think about this, here is the concept in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. If you were with us the last time we preached, we taught on the book of Romans. It was chapter 8, which is the high point in the whole book. You know, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to His purpose, and who God foreknew, He predestined, and He conformed to be made in the image of His Son. God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. But a Jew, an Israelite, who would hear that would ask an immediate question. They would ask God, then why has the nation of Israel been neglected? Why has Israel rejected Jesus as Messiah? If God is faithful, will God forget his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And this is the question that Paul is going to answer in this section. So here is an overview outline, okay? So you have to kind of grasp this in your mind. Put yourself in a Jewish or an Israelite person's shoes. God chose your forefathers. God gave you covenant promises. God gave you blessings. And now your people have turned away from Him. Is God finished with you? So Paul here emphasizes in Romans 9... Israel's past election. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. God chose Jacob. God chose the church, the early Israelite fathers and gave them certain promises and covenants that guaranteed them a place in God's plan. But when Jesus came, who was descended from Israel, what did the religious leaders do with Jesus? We will not have this man rule over us, crucify him. They stumbled, Paul says, Romans chapter 10, they stumbled over the cornerstone. They rejected Jesus. And as a result of their rejection of Jesus, what did God do? He drew in Gentiles, that would be anybody who's not an Israelite, he drew them into his plan, and Paul pictures an olive tree and says, basically, God has grafted the Gentiles into his program. Why did God do that? He did it to provoke Israel to jealousy and to show that he has mercy on all. But God does not end the story there. In Romans chapter 11, God is very clear that one day he would restore the nation of Israel and he would fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham through that nation. When Jesus returns, Paul is very clear, all Israel will be saved. God's 
future restoration for that nation is sure. Now let me make a side comment here because this is very important. Israel has been in the news a lot lately. You know that they were invaded by Hamas and there's this big war over in Palestine where they have went over into the Gaza Strip trying to kill out all the terrorists and all kinds of hostages were taken. And now you have the Arab nations around Israel, by the way, she is surrounded by Arabs, who are now, by and large, and have always, are turning against the nation of Israel. Now, you may or may not hear this, you may or may not see the news that's actually happening from that land, but by and large, they are gathering together, calling for the destruction and annihilation of the nation of Israel. Now, that may, you may say, well, thank God they're over there. That has nothing to do with me. Well, actually, it does have something to do with you. We were told just this past week that what is actually happening in the Middle East, specifically with Iran and other large nations, they are now bombing American targets around the parts of the world. And what they are trying to do, this came from a very intelligent friend, he said, what they are trying to do is draw your weak country into this war. Because they know that if they can draw you into this war, they can defeat you. Because America is going to be in trouble when they go to war with all of these Arab nations. Now let me just say this, folks. That's kind of piercing in one way because let me, let me be candid with you this morning. I don't want to see a Middle East war with America. I don't want to see that. I don't know what's going to happen, so don't ask me. But what I do know is there is a rising major hatred that has increased more and more as we talk even. And the destruction of Israel is in the crosshairs of every nation that surrounds her. They want Israel wiped off the map. Now, before you become alarmed, let me just simply say this. Did you know that that is God's plan? God is actually going to draw the nations into Israel. If you read the Old Testament, God is going to draw them in and God is going to go to war. And He's going to win. Now, as we begin to say this, we have to keep the big gas grill in mind here. God has a plan. We see pieces setting and floating here and there and we don't understand how they all fit. God understands perfectly. And let me say this, you and I worrying about all of these details is not going to change one way it fits. So rest your little heart this morning in the faithfulness of God and in God's promises and words. Live your life like God would have you live. Let your light shine. Share the gospel with people. Live out your faith and be faithful to your family and your church family and your community. And let God worry about all these big details. He has a plan. But Paul here is writing to people to let them know God is not finished with the nation Israel. Now, to show you the hatred for this nation, I won't mention any names, but we had some guests here recently. And this is what they shared. They shared this. We are able to go into any of our countries and talk about Jesus with anybody with no persecution. But if you take our picture beside a certain nation's flag, our ministry and our life are over. Did you hear me? Our ministry and our life is over. This is the animosity and the hatred that is living in our world today toward these people. Now, why is that? In my opinion, okay, this is opinion. In my opinion, there is a demonic hatred that is instilled in the hearts of people for these Jewish descendants on purpose and for purpose. And God is going to use all of this to bring somehow His plan into the world. Now, as we think about this, and I know I have unrolled a lot here, but as we think about this incredible plan that God has, and in light of all the tragedy that you and I see on the news and all the media twists and turns, here's what I can tell you. 
God is orchestrating and working out a master plan that Paul said, oh, the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge and the glory of God. He is unsearchable and nobody can figure out His ways. But to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And that's where we're going to conclude today. So here is the point. The point is that God's Word has not failed. It has not. He is not finished. And it's not, it's not finished because of Israel's unbelief. God will one day restore that nation and His plan is now to graft in Gentile believers and also an elect remnant from the nation Israel. Now we could get lost in a lot of details here in Romans 9. Uh, I have several friends who love this passage because they say no preacher ever preaches on this because it talks about divine election. Do you believe in divine election? Absolutely I do and you should too. Because God does teach divine election. And this is God's business, by the way. God's business is election. Your business is belief. And as one preacher said, mind your own business. You don't know the details, and I don't know the details, and nobody else knows the details. But what we do know is that God elected the nation Israel to bring forth Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who died for every man's sins. And we can say that with an emphatic purpose. One commentator wrote this, one should not understand the central issue in these chapters, 9, 10, and 11, to be predestination or even Israel's justification, salvation, though he covers this as well. The section of Romans is about explaining how the promises of God in the Word have not failed. They haven't failed. He promised Israel something. They did not believe Him. God opened up the door of blessing to the Gentiles and God still has a plan. It hasn't failed. He knew exactly what He was doing. In light of the overall theme of Romans, this section explains why Israel is experiencing the wrath of God and what they can do to escape it. Okay? So with those truths laid out before us, let's look at these major highlights. Two audiences in Romans 9 through 11, first of all, the Israelites, and second, Gentile believers. Now, as I lay this out, keep in mind I have some practical application for you at the end of this message. You all should thank God for my wife because this is what she constantly reminds me of. Keep it practical. So you all can thank her later, okay? I added that in uh, just for you. But first of all, Paul wants to address the Jews who question if God was finished with them. Okay? So here we go, Romans chapter 8. You've got to be a Jewish reader here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now you could imagine Paul writing, as he begins to say this, a Jewish reader is going to read, okay, and those He predestined, He called, those He called, He justified, and those He justified, He glorified. Now any Jew who was in this church in Rome would say, what about my fellow brothers? And Paul here is going to write for this reason. So listen to what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Can I stop there for a minute? Something about the human nature that you may not even think about is that it is possible within our being to have absolute joy of Romans chapter 8 and at the same time have an unceasing anguish existing in one human. To give you a practical application of this, one of my children happened to be born just days before my father died. I, I don't know how to say this. I had unceasing joy in my heart because of the birth of one of my children 
And at the same time, I had unceasing anguish in my life because my dad had passed away. And I wanted to rejoice, and I actually did rejoice in the birth, but I also had to mourn the loss. And, and this desire, this, this joy and this anguish exist inside of us. And I'm sure that's in you this morning. You, you find joy in Jesus, but you have problems in your life and your family. You have joy that you are a believer, that you have everlasting life in Jesus, yet you have people in your family who do not know Jesus and who are perishing. And we struggle with this and we think, what do I do with this? Well, I'm going to tell you what to do with it at the very end of this message, but this is just part of who we are. And Paul was the same. He had joy in Jesus over his salvation, but he also had anguish that his relatives and his believers were going to perish without Jesus. I mean, the only way you can handle that, folks, is God's grace. And Paul said, I have this living within me, and, notice what he says, I, for I could wish, because that's all he could do, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul said, if I could, I'd just give up my salvation for them. But obviously, he can't. Now, he's going to decide, he's going to designate who are his brothers he's talking about. The Israelites. They're Israelites. And in case you don't know who they are, to them belong the adoption. This is where God adopted them. He, they were his sons. To them belong the Shekinah glory. They are the ones who saw God's glory descend down upon them. To them belong the covenants. What are the covenants God gave to Israel? He gave the Abrahamic covenant. He gave the Davidic covenant. He gave the new covenant. These are the unconditional promises that God made to this nation. And He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the worship and the promises. Now notice what Paul says, by the way. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from their Jewish-Israelite race, according to the flesh, is the Messiah. Jesus came from the Israelites. And notice what Paul says here, by the way. All theologians love this verse because everybody misses it. Who is the Christ who is God over all? You ever want to question whether Jesus is God, very God? Look at Romans right here in chapter 9. Who is the Christ who is God over all? Blessed forever. An amen right there. Jesus came from them and He is God. Knows exactly what He's doing. But listen to what Paul writes. But, you know, they are these Israelites. They have all these privileges. They have all these promises. But they didn't believe. They rejected their Messiah. And Paul is now going to say, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because Israel failed, God's word didn't fail. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now what does he mean by that? Well, this is what he means by that. Let me put it in a practical term. Not all who have their name on a church roll are actually believers in Jesus. Just because they were Israelites doesn't mean that they were born again. By the way, this ought to be a, a, a chokehold on every person. Just because you're born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. You must believe in Jesus for eternal life. Your mom and your dad's salvation does you no good other than the fact that they hopefully live a moral life and talk to you about salvation. That is an individual matter. And this is exactly what Paul's saying. That just because you have the blessings of all these truths from God doesn't make you regenerate. And this was God's intention all along, we're going to find out. Not all who are of Israel are saved. Now notice what he says. And not all are children of Abraham. This is basically what he means. 
because they are his offspring. You know, being born in the right family doesn't make you automatically God's child. You want me to get practical here? I'll get practical. Being raised in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. You must see your own need. You must believe. And if you don't, you do not have eternal life. And parents, we have to emphasize this to our children constantly. My faith does not automatically mean your faith. Because I'm a believer doesn't automatically mean that you're a believer. You must be born again. And share that message with your children constantly. No pedigree, no personal family name does any good. Okay. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But now Paul's going to give these analogies, these illustrations here. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what Paul does in Romans 9 is he lists two children from Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, the older, the younger. They had the same father, different mothers. Who did God choose? It wasn't Ishmael. He chose the line of Isaac. And a Jew may say, well, the reason he did that is because Sarah was his correct wife, not, not Hagar. And so to answer that question, Paul is going to next go to Jacob, who married who? That had Jacob and Esau. Same mother, same father, two children, and God now chooses the younger over the older. To show what? If you read the argument in Romans 9, it's not about actions. It's not about what people do. This was God's selective choice. He chose Jacob over Esau. And then he goes on down through Romans 9 and he begins to argue that how God is God, whether we know it or not, and God has a purpose and a plan, and we don't know every detail of it, but Paul says by the time you get to the end, all the pieces fit together. Now, see how easy it is to get lost here? Some people say, well, what about this election business? What, what do you do with that? Are people elect unto salvation? Are people elect unto service? Is there individual election or is there corporate election? You ready for my answer? Yes. Yes. And it depends on the context what you're talking about. Don't get lost in the sauce. The point is simply this. God selected the nation of Israel to be the ones who would bring about Jesus and the promises and the covenants, and He's going to fulfill His word. But just because He selected them doesn't mean that every individual Israelite was an elect believer. Many of them perished, but God always has a remnant. Don't lose that. Okay. Now, what does Paul say in Romans 10? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, for them, for Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Karen and I went to Israel uh, some time back, and we were standing above the the eastern gate right there where they go in. And I was amazed. There are Jews who walk around with a book about this big, folded, and all they do all day is walk around talking about letters and all of these things in the five, first five books. I mean, their life is consumed. They have a zeal for God. They make these big, long locks of hair come down, and they look, you know, rather weird, just to be honest with you. Big black hats out in 100-degree weather. They don't, they don't think. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And then you have a bunch of the other Jews in the land today, over 90% some say, that are atheist, agnostic. They don't believe. Why? I'm going to tell you in a minute, and you're going to be shocked. But Paul says this, they have a zeal for God, but the problem is, they have no knowledge. They have the wrong instruction manual. It's their righteousness, not God's. It's their good works, 
not Jesus Christ. And this is the great, this is the great problem. They want their righteousness, and God says, no, yours is like a filthy rag. Here's my righteousness, Jesus. And they say, no, we don't want Him. And so here's what Paul writes. They have a zeal for God, but not according to a knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Can I interpretively read that? Let me go back and interpretively read that. You follow me on the screen. For being ignorant of Jesus Christ, who God gave for man's sin, and seeking to establish their own righteousness because they're a Jew, because they have the Ten Commandments, because they have the right family, they did not submit to Jesus Christ, the one who God sent to die for their sin. And as a result, they stand in their own lostness, even though they are an Israelite. Now notice what Paul writes, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, a Jew thought if they kept God's law, the the Ten Commandments, if they kept them, they would have eternal life. Paul says this is impossible. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile. All, all have fallen short. All need righteousness. God has provided righteousness for all. But you know what some people say? I don't need it. I don't need it. Paul says you're reading out of the wrong book. Your standard is being measured with the wrong tape measure. You have fallen short. You need God's righteousness. And keeping the law is not going to make you righteous. It's going to do nothing but condemn you. You need God's righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That is how you get it. Okay, so Paul here has this desire that he wants Israel to be saved. Now, chapter 11, isn't this fascinating? 9-1, 10-1, 11-1. Paul's dealing with the same issue here, so don't get lost. I ask then, has God rejected Israel? Can I read that? His people? By no means. The Greek text, God forbid. Absolutely not. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people who He foreknew. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, this is what Elijah said, They have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they, Israelites, are seeking my life. Notice what he says. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. An elect Israel within corporate Israel. God says, here is the nation... Within that nation, I have an elect remnant that you don't know about. And you know what he's telling the Jewish audience and the Gentile audience? Within this corporate Israel, I have an elect remnant of Israelites in there who know me. Keep in mind here, he's talking about Israel. Notice what he says. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So when you think about national Israel and you think about all these Jews in there, 90 some percent are not believers, atheists, agnostic, guess what? Even within that corporate group, God has a select number that are chosen who are, as He says here, a remnant chosen by grace. Now you know what? You may say, Well, that's unfair, and I don't like that. I'm going to tell you what a man told me. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, because this is not your world, it's not your plan, and you don't know the end from the beginning like God does. 
Now, first of all, don't put your name here. This is not talking about you. This is talking about the nation of Israel. And there is an elect remnant within the nation of Israel, and listen to this, the Apostle Paul was one of them. This is why when he wrote this section at the end of it, he bursts out in praise and says, Oh, the depth and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. I'm one! And yes, his heart broke for his brothers who were in blindness, but he rejoiced in God's goodness and grace. We should do that as well. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In chapter 9, Paul also talks about Moses and Pharaoh. What happened? You have a servant and you have a king. You have one who is lowly and you have one who is rich. What did God do? He selected Moses and what did he do to Pharaoh? Yes, he hardened Pharaoh. Did Pharaoh harden himself? Yes. Did God help him? Yes. As one person said, the sun does what? It, all, it softens and it hardens clay. It can do one of two things, depending on how you respond. So what is the point? God has a select remnant within Israel that will believe. Now, what about the Gentiles? So here are the Jews who are sitting there, the Israelites, listening to Paul, and they're saying to themselves, well, there's an elect remnant among this nation of Israel. What, what are the Gentiles going to say? You know, some Gentiles, by the way, say God is finished with Israel, the church has replaced national Israel, and there, God has no plan for them, there's no need to reach them, forget them, let them go. And God says, ridiculous. And here's what he tells Gentiles. Notice this. To the Gentiles who obtain God's mercy, he says this. Now, now, Romans 11, I'm going to speak to you Gentiles. This means you people who are not born from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have a, I have a message I want you to hear. And here it is. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... And I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And by the way, Paul did that. If you read the book of Acts, when he went throughout Jewish territory and preached that God's grace had come to the Gentiles, what did they do to Paul? They tried to kill him. This is what the whole New Testament's about. Paul went to the Galatians and he preached the gospel by God's grace and the Judaizers came after him and tried to kill him. He went to this place. He went to that place. And guess who his number one persecutors were? The Jews! And Paul said, I kept preaching the grace of God to the Gentiles and they tried to kill me, but I did it to make them jealous. God has now turned His love toward Gentiles who will believe. Notice what he says. To make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Keep in mind what we just read. There is an elect remnant. And Paul here said some of them would believe. For if, catch, catch this, for if the, if the Israelite rejection means reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean except life from the dead? In other words, if God turned His program from the nation of Israel to Gentiles and some of those Jews are saved, what is it going to be when He saves the whole mess? Except life from the dead. Now keep tracking. If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Where did my tree go up here? Somebody took it away. I used to have a bush tree here. You all imagine there's a tree. Down in the ground is the roots. You all know roots support the tree. The roots are the 
call of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the covenants that are promised. That's the root. And out of those promises of God come the trunk of the tree. This is God's blessing. This is the nation of Israel. And then there are branches out on this tree. Some of those branches were broke off. They were pruned. And guess what God did? He went over to another tree and broke off a limb, peeled back the bark, and grafted in a branch. Now here's what he's telling the Gentiles. Listen, Gentiles. You are not the root. You are not the tree trunk. You are simply partaking of God's blessing in the olive tree because God, by His grace and His mercy, chose to graft you in. Now, if you've ever been involved in a fruit orchard, you know how this works. It's fascinating. You can take a yellow apple tree, cut it off. You can go get another apple tree and put it in it. You can have one tree producing yellow apples and red apples. Some have told me that you can take different fruit. I don't know if this is... Y'all can correct me afterward. The point is simply this. You can have differences in one tree. And what he's saying to the Gentiles is the root and the tree are God's promises to the nation of Israel, but some of them didn't believe and God broke their branches off and you have been grafted in. So... Notice what he says, you were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. God's promises through Jesus. But now careful, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Who are the branches? Say Israel. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember... It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Yeah, that's true, Paul says. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Now this is why we say, be kind to the nation of Israel. Even though they're in unbelief, even though by and large they're hostile toward God, what does Paul say? You need to keep reaching them. You need to keep praying for them. You need to keep efforts toward helping and sustaining them. Why? Because they are the ones through whom blessing came. Paul writes, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. You want me to go back and read that interpretively? Severity toward those Israelites who did not believe on Jesus for eternal life. They were broken off. But... God's kindness toward you Gentiles because their rejection of Jesus opened up God's doorway to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Wow. Now, I want you all to put yourself in my place. Every time I go to the Middle East, I am assigned to teach a class that deals right with this issue. And I mean, I take about four lectures and go through every verse of Romans 9, 10, and 11. And by the time I get to the end of chapter 11, I have both anger, hostility, and rejoicing that is broken out like waves in the class. But here is God's message to Gentiles. Don't become arrogant or He'll cut us off too. Not from our salvation, but from our blessing. Now, notice what Paul says. And even if they, and even they, Israelites, if they do not continue in their unbelief. So, if a Jew today, or if an Israelite believes, what happens? They're back in the olive tree. They will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft Israel in again. 
For if you were cut out from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature in a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, Israel, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And he says, it would be plum natural. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Now here is a little graft, a little shoot, and a cut, a slit that's put in a tree. That's us today. We tap into their blessings, specifically their Messiah. Now, what happened? Why did Israel not believe? Are y'all ready for this? This is like a strong dose of castor oil. Y'all remember having to drink that? Listen to what Paul says. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, stay with me. It is a mystery why Israel rejected Jesus. It is a mystery why God brought His blessing to Gentiles and turned the Israelites away. So Paul says, listen to this mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, a partial divine hardening has come upon Israel. You want to know why they're in unbelief? You ready for this? Are you ready? Because God hardened them. When Jesus was here on earth and He told the Jewish leaders of that day, you have committed the unpardonable sin, what did they do? They said to Him, the miracle that you did to the deaf, mute, Blind man was from the devil. What did Jesus tell him? You didn't do that by the Spirit of God. You did that by the Spirit of the devil. He told them, you have committed a sin that will not be forgiven in this age or in the one to come. And you will not say to me, blessed is he who comes in the name... You won't say anything until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what God did with the nation of Israel? Boom, he... He turned the program off to them. Except for an elect remnant in the nation of Israel, and He turned His blessing to the Gentiles. And that's how you and I got saved, friend. And you know what God did? He hardened them. Listen to this. He hardened them until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See it on the screen? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until... Until, that's a time phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. How? Because the Deliverer will come from Zion and He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That's the new covenant. As regards the gospel, the Israelites are enemies for your Gentile sake. But as regards to election, the Israelites are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the gifts and the calling of God toward that nation are irrevocable. God has not abandoned His faithful promises to the nation of Israel. But while He's turning the blessing to the Gentiles, don't be arrogant toward them. Okay? Wow. What a passage. Notice what he says. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Do you know that God's hardening of Israel is actually grace? Don't ask me to explain that. When Jesus began to speak in parables and His disciples came and asked Him, why are you doing this? This is what He basically said. I'm doing this to withhold truth from those who don't want to hear it and give it to those who do so that their judgment is not more severe. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's grace. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. Because once again, this is God's gas grill. He wrote the instruction manual. He knows how it fits together. I'm just glad to be a washer, a nut or a bolt somewhere in the plan. 
So what are five truths regarding God's unfailing plan? Quickly, you ready? Five. Here they go. First of all, remember this. God has a plan and he's guiding everything in his direction. When we think about this, it is startling. God is not finished with the Israelite people. God is going to turn his program back on them. Jesus is going to rule the world from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And then through all eternity, a new heaven and a new earth. God has a plan, folks. He's going to take care of it. Trust Him. Number two, man's disobedience and rejection does not mean God's Word has failed. Just because man doesn't believe, we think to ourselves, well, God has surely failed. No. Believe it or not, perhaps that was in God's plan. Swallow hard. Number three, both divine sovereignty and human responsibility factor into God's plan. Yes, God has a remnant, but yes, that remnant has to believe to have everlasting life. If they don't, they don't have it. Say, explain that to me. No. No, because I can't. And nobody else can either. And when people decide that they are smart as God and there's a fourth member of the Trinity and they're going to tell you everything about election, they're going to tell you everything about God's mystery, take your fingers and go like this. Because Paul says knowledge puffs up. We don't know it all, folks. But we know enough to know God has a plan. He's in charge. He has divine sovereignty. Man has responsibility. Fourth, God's mercy and kindness are available to all in Jesus Christ. Not one of us deserve God's mercy, but yet He offers it to us all. Don't shun God's mercy. And then Paul writes God's wisdom, His riches, His wisdom, His knowledge, and His judgment, and His ways are unfathomable. I mean, if, God, if Paul could not fathom them through inspiration, do you think that you and I can fathom all of this? <laughs> Impossible. But God has a plan. Back to point number one. God has a plan, and He's guiding it in everything in His direction. Just trust Him. Listen to what Paul writes. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Anybody like to answer that? Not me. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? I've known a lot of humans that would like to give God some counsel, don't you? I don't think God should do it. I think... I th Nobody. Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then Paul writes, To Him be glory forevermore. Amen. Amen. And you know, by the way, Christian quoted that verse this morning. Therefore, I, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you Gentiles have received, you don't have a temple or a tabernacle anymore, but I beseech you, brothers, by the mercy of God, you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual service. You may not be an Israelite and have the tabernacle and the temple, but you have a body that you can serve God with. And you, you, you owe it to Him to give Him that. What are some practical lessons? Quickly. We should have a burden for people who don't know Jesus, just like Paul. Did you know that? We should be burdened. I could preach a whole message on this. Lesson number two, we should focus on God's plan for the righteousness we need for everlasting life. What does he tell the Israelites? They missed it. They went to establish a righteousness of their own, and they rejected God's righteousness through Jesus. We must focus on Jesus and what He did for us. And this is the message we need to share. Lesson number three, we must never be arrogant over God's mercy that's extended toward us. Instead, it should humble us. 
that God would turn His mercy toward me and toward you. Never be arrogant. Always be humble. And then fourth, we should celebrate God's faithfulness and sovereignty. Even though we can't explain it, even though we don't understand all of it, we do know God's in control. And we thank Him for that. He has a plan. But the biggest question that you have to answer today is simply this. What have you, what have you done with God's gracious gift of eternal life through Jesus for you? Have you accepted it? Or are you like the Israelite? You think that you have it under control. You think that you're going to be good enough. You don't want to submit to God's way. You're going to do it your way. I'm going to tell you something. Don't do that. Because you'll be just like the Israelite. You will be hardened. You'll be hardened and hardened and hardened until pretty soon it just falls off. You know, the most dangerous thing that you can do as an individual is hear the gospel of God's grace offered and given to you and turn your head and say, I don't want that. I don't need that. Don't reject God's grace in the person of Jesus. Believe on Jesus for eternal life. And He'll save you. He'll save you. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Some of these are deep, mysterious truths. Thank You for showing us some of these truths that we can see what You're doing in our world. But more importantly, help us, Father, to understand what the gift of eternal life really is in Jesus. And I pray this morning, if there's anyone listening or anyone here to, that has never believed, accepted, welcomed in the truth that Jesus loved and died for our sins, paid the penalty and offers us His righteousness, if they have never done that, I pray that you would open their heart to your truth and help them believe this morning what Jesus offers. We thank you, we praise you, and we worship you today for the amazing, incredible, unfathomable God that you are and the plan that you have and that you're working out in this world. And as a result, help us truly to dedicate our life to loving, serving, and living for you as your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.